We return to our Bringing Light into Darkness interview and dialogue with Dr. Alan McLeod. We return to our discussion of Navalny, the Russian that was allegedly poisoned and is sitting in prison in Russia for criminal offenses that he was found guilty of. We return with our discussion of how the U.S. media presented this case to the American public. Getting back to Navalny a little bit, it was just that what was not reported was that the CIA and the MI6 played a, a critical role in the accusations against Russia that was reported by the New York Times. So here you have this meeting and providing the German government with details of the poisoning coming without any input from Russia or a third party, but it's like you're you're poisoning the water. Uh, I mean, why would you uh, believe these agents, agencies that clearly have a, a motivation, which is their job, to discredit Russia and such? So are, are you familiar with those briefings that occurred re- regarding Bellingcat and also information that was made available to the German government by the UK and the US intelligence services to Germany to you know kind of poison that well, for lack of a better word? Yeah, I, I haven't followed the story intently, but from what I really gather from it, it seems to be kind of this rearguard action to try to stop Germany accepting this second Nord Stream pipeline, which goes from Russia over to Western Europe and provides so much of Europe with the energy it needs to keep the lights on. Russia is a huge producer of gas. Natural gas is very, very common across Europe. I've got it in my own house, although ours comes from the North Sea, the UK is uh, pretty much self-sufficient, but most of continental Europe isn't. And this is a massive money spinner for the Russian government. Its chief export, I believe, is energy. One of its biggest customers is Germany. And Germany has always had a much more a nuanced position to Russia than most of the rest of uh, Europe and North America, probably because of its historic connections. Mm-hmm. It's much closer to Russia than the other countries. It's also there's a lot of uh, economic ties there as well. And so generally, Angela Merkel has always been one of the most dovish leaders in the world when it comes to Russia. And so this uh, poisoning of Navalny hears that the United States and Great Britain are trying to use this as a wedge issue to try to hopefully in their you know, wildest dreams they might split Germany off from Russia. I think part of it is just to try to create a sort of ongoing climate of hostility towards Moscow and so potentially future deals won't go through the pipeline, if that's a bit of a bad uh, analogy to make. I think you're right. Mate actually pointed out some of the same issues. He went a little bit further in some ways because just getting back to the Navalny poisoning, that MI6 and CIA brief to the German government was not made public. And only, quote, now are we learning that immediately afterwards, the CIA and the MI6, who are major adversaries of Russia, were the ones that provided the supposed evidence that implicated Russia. And now months later, a report that supposedly confirms those allegations is being produced by a website called Bellingcat that is funded by the same states behind the CIA and the M16. So there's, there's that what's going on. Let me ask you, too, because I think in your article, creating deceit, creating uncertainty and all of these things is just a huge business, it seems to me. And in your piece, which I really liked, is you talked about how I'm reading just a, a sentence from your paper here. Increasingly, it seems Bellingcat is serving as a training ground for those looking for a job in the West's most prestigious media outlets. So here again, 
is you're creating an industry of quote unquote expert or sources that are being interviewed by people that may have been formerly with Bellingcat. <laughs> and, and so what appears to be independent intelligence related information, if they're not revealing these prior and current relationships, then the ethics are horrific. Can you sp explain a little bit more about the convergence of the media? And it's not just Bellingcat. I mean, we have a revolving door with a lot of military experts that are with Raytheon or other military industrial corporate interests as well. But it's just really important, I think, in this intelligence deal to have a cutout like Bellingcat. There's not a whole lot of those as opposed to the other type of, of revolving military door analysts that we see on all the major networks. Yeah, in that piece, I kind of called it a spook to Bellingcat to journalist pipeline. And what I meant by that is people seem to cut their teeth at Bellingcat and make a name for themselves. And based on the work they did there, managed to secure jobs in some of the most prestigious media outlets in the West. So, for instance, Brenna Smith, who was at Bellingcat until recently, uh, she was recently the subject of a media storm, actually, because of her reporting on the Capitol Hill uh, insurrection. She announced recently that she would leave USA Today and take a job at the New York Times, which is like, you know, the Harvard of media outlets. You don't get a job there unless, unless you're considered the best of the best. But there's already an ex-Bellingcat uh, man, Christian Trebert, there, who joined the Times uh, team in 2019. And so that's an example of how Bellingcat is really sort of laundering these people who have quite questionable backgrounds into corporate media. But, you know, this is a problem that's been going on a long time. As you said, turn on your television and watch cable news. You will quite likely see, if you watch for more than a couple of hours, some person who used to be an ex-director of the CIA or of the DNI, James Clapper, for instance, is somebody who's constantly on television. And even if you want to get a job writing about national security, there seems to be a huge amount of fraternization between journalists and uh, intelligence analysts, to the point where you're not actually sure where one ends and the other begins. So in the past few years, we've seen story after story, bombshell after bombshell, being based on the reports and rumors from anonymous intelligence officials. I'm thinking about the Taliban bounty scandal, which is going on currently, or the Cuban sonic right. uh, sonic cannon thing, which is supposedly injuring all sorts of American agents all over the world. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's accredited to Russia or China. Or, yeah, there's all sorts of like anonymous stories going around. A mm -hmm. lot of them had to do with Russiagate and making Donald Trump look bad. And in fact, you know, we've actually got documents proving that, for instance, CBS's national security correspondent, Ken Delanian, used to send his stories to the CIA to be vetted before he published them to make sure there was nothing in there that was wrong or anything that they wanted changed. Now, me as an investigative journalist, the idea of sending my article to somebody to proofread it, let alone a spook, would be unthinkable. <laughs> so, you know, what does that say about our media system when the biggest outlets seem to be fraternizing so closely with the CIA and uh, other three-letter agencies? Yeah, and uh, what's well documented is that, at least in our country, 90% uh, of the news that's made available for public consumption or that it is consumed publicly is generated by six huge corporations. So 
you can already imagine that if the media is owned by the same interests that are connected to the war security state production, that's what you need an independent press to reveal and, and share that these are creating conflicts of interest. But people don't even really think about that. You know, when you were talking about the media outlets and the revolving door, can you also speak to the think tanks like the Atlantic Council, right? There's like, what, six or seven former CIA directors that are associated with the Atlantic Council, yet somehow when you hear these people on on the news or when you're hearing theoretical interpretations of national security issues, these very well-connected interests are not revealed. Again, it's the, it's the appearance of trying to create the appearance of independent ideas that in reality reflect these potential conflicts of interest. Like, And I don't mean to go on and on, but I know in, in the field of, of science, medications or something like that, you have to reveal if you have any economic connection with what you are promoting so people can see. I mean, you still might be speaking the truth, but you still have to let people know, really scrutinize what's being said a little more closely because this person's got a, a stated you know, involvement in that company or whatever. But you don't get that as you so brilliantly put forth throughout your whole article that all of these relationships that are very ethically questionable, most people have no idea about them. But, but can you speak Briefly to the, you know, the Atlantic Council and other think tanks and their influence on, on public opinion as well. Yeah, sure. I mean, think tanks are really important in Western society in terms of shaping the public debate about important issues. I mean, if you, again, if you turn on your television or open up a newspaper, you will see employees of think tanks either writing articles or being talking heads on news shows. Uh, they're constantly there. Uh, they also put out reports of their own big studies, which in themselves become news and help to shape the national debate. But think tanks cost a lot of money to run. Certainly, any of them aren't, you know, run on a shoestring and have only a couple of employees. Most of them have big offices in the center of Washington, D.C. or New York City, and they have dozens, if not hundreds, of employees. And there's only really two places you can get that sort of money to uh, have a think tank. Mm-hmm. And one of them is big, big, uh, big business, whether that's Silicon Valley, big oil, or weapons contractors. They tend to be the three biggest um, funders of think tanks. Perhaps Wall Street is a fourth. And the second one is the government itself. Mm-hmm. And that's really the only place you're going to get the big bucks to have enough to employ hundreds of people on big salaries to put out these reports. And finding nobody these big companies that give these think tanks hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars each every year, they get something for their money. And what they get is reports, studies, and experts who repeat ideas which are favorable to the people that pay them. And so we get pro-corporate propaganda coming out of them. We also get pro-regime change stuff. If it's a think tank that is uh, sponsored by weapons contractors, it always seems that that think tank recommends that the U.S. government spend more on its military or perhaps gets more involved in wars in the Middle East or the Pacific. Very few of them are pro-peace, very few of them are pro-taxing the rich, mm-hmm. because uh, that's not what their sources of income want. So there's a massive conflict of interest with these think tanks, but that's very, very rarely uh, actually mentioned on these corporate outlets. It, very rarely do you see somebody that, you know, said, you know, oh, he's from the CNAS or the... Uh, you know, the Brookings Institute. Oh, and by the way, 
uh, they're directly their salary is pretty much directly paid for by the Koch right. brothers or by Wall Street or anything like that. Um, the Atlantic Council is particularly egregious. It's pretty much uh, the official think tank of NATO, and it's sponsored by the U.S. government as well as defense contractors, Middle Eastern dictatorships, and uh, big tech companies like Google and Facebook as well. It's and particularly it, yeah. um, influential. I mean, as you said, mm-hmm. there's seven former CIA directors on their board. Mm-hmm. Also on the board are war planners like Henry Kissinger, a number of big generals like General David Petraeus, Mad Dog Mattis, H.R. McMaster, Colin Powell, mm-hmm. Condoleezza Rice, and James Baker from the Bush administration are on there as well. So it really is the think tank of the establishment of the national security state. And what's particularly pernicious is that the Atlantic Council has now gone into partnership with a number of uh, big social media networks, particularly Facebook. In fact, in 2018, Facebook announced that they had partnered with the council to help decide what is fake news and what is good quality information. So this think tank now has very substantial control over what Americans and everyone else in the rest of the world who uses Facebook, which is billions of people, see on their news feed. And so this really is one step away from direct state censorship on a worldwide level. And people aren't even aware that this is going on. And that's why it's so pernicious and such a big issue right now, because Facebook has billions of users. Something like 30 to 40% of Facebook users say that it's their number one source of news. And so when people appointed by the CIA or the Bush administration or Henry Kissinger are deciding what you see and what you don't see online, that is a really big problem for uh, society and for democracy as a whole. That's an outstanding point. And that goes back to the those that own the disproportionate wealth, own the informational pathways. You know, uh, certainly there's room for people like you or me to have a radio program and but but we reach how many people you know they're reaching it's, it's amazing so i want to remind people that we are visiting with dr alan mcleod and i wanted to also indicate that i think the wealth concentration issue it buys so many things and you are really do a good job of of indicating how it buys the information in a way that people don't see it as being bought um, by these connected, you mentioned the word, interlocking interests. And I wanted to just indicate that the concentration of wealth, despite the pandemic, federal data shows that in our country here in the United States that all groups gained wealth last year, but the top 1% did the best, adding $4 trillion in 2020 and bringing their total net worth to almost $39 billion more than the bottom 90% of Americans combined. Personal incomes in the U.S. jumped a record 21% in March, surging after households received a third of their relief checks. This is from the wealthiest Americans get $195 billion richer in Biden's first 100 days by uh, Stephen Hunt and Ben Steverman. Another source that we've sourced regularly is Oxfam. And in their briefing paper back in January of 2021, they found that global billionaires increased their wealth by some $3.9 trillion from the onset of the pandemic through the end of 2020, even as millions fell into poverty. And so while it's going to take another uh, decade or more for most folk to retrieve what they lost during this pandemic, the, the richest lost early, but gained it all back and much, much more. And this is that status quo, I might just suggest, 
that is so well protected by so many layers of these types of relationships that you in your article share very eloquently. And lastly, I just wanted, before we let you go, I did want to ask you just to have, if you had any concluding remarks, and then also if people are interested, Alan, in accessing your work, I know you post quite a bit at Mint Press and stuff, but are there other places that people can seek the kind of information that we've been talking about tonight in order to do their own research? And only if we do our own research and do we become educated, is there any chance to holding our governments responsible to our democracy? I mean, the great media scholar uh, Mickey Huff said that it's okay if media reform isn't your top issue, but it better be at least your second top issue, because otherwise, if it's not, nobody's going to hear about what you really care about, because ultimately, the media is the way in which we communicate with each other, and they hold uh, the keys to that communication. And so I always think it's very important to have a strong understanding of how the media works and a strong critique of how it works. And I always suggest to people that they should try to triangulate their views by looking at a wide range of sources. Don't just uh, use one source. Try to have a look at sources from other countries. There's plenty of reporting uh, that you can get online now from uh, whether it's Al Jazeera or RT or Telesur or the BBC. They'll all have different views to the ones you might uh, pick up in your own media. And by reading from all sorts of uh, different places, you start being able to pinpoint the biases of, of these different places and even the biases that you weren't able to see before. I'd also say that um, getting away from corporate-funded media is very important. I try to have a look at alternative media that is funded primarily through the listeners or the readers. That means that generally those places are more beholden to their readers rather than beholden to their advertisers or any sort of government putting up money. So there's a whole lot of great alternative media sites you can have a look at. I've written for many of them, whether it's Colin Dreams or Counterpunch or The Grey Zone or Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting or Mint Press or Democracy Now! or any of these places which might have a different view uh, that you might get if you just switched on your television or uh, bought a newspaper at the local store. So I think generally you have to question more because ultimately... If we don't really question the way we, uh, the sources of information that we've got, we're not really going to be moving towards a different paradigm. So, yeah, I would encourage everybody to read widely, read from uh, sources from different countries, even sources that might be from countries that are antagonistic to your own. That might actually help you, even if you don't agree with them. Have a look at listener-supported news. Try to support alternative media if you think they're doing a good job. What was the last question? Where can you find my stuff? Yeah, uh, where can yeah, you find yeah, more of my stuff? Right. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I write mostly for Mint Press News and for Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, which is fair.org. If you want to follow me, you can probably, I don't have a big social media footprint, but Twitter is where I, I'm on most. Uh, you can find me at, at Alan R. McLeod, A-L-A-N-R-M-A-C-L-E-O-D. Yeah, and so thank you so much for your writing and your visit tonight. I want to remind folks that we have been visiting with Dr. Alan McLeod. He's a journalist and academic, actually specializes in propaganda. When you're talking about the importance of media, I have a fascination with Herbert Schiller, who was a big, big media critique person in my own education around the subject. But I think people should know are an author, 
your first book, Bad News from Venezuela, 20 Years of Fake News and Misreporting. You, you, you published that in 2017. And your more recent book is in 2019, The Propaganda Model in the Information Age, Still Manufacturing Consent. At the end of the day, if we are truly going to fulfill our duties as citizens, whether it's the United States or the UK, we must know how our government operates and hold them accountable. And in order to do that, that diverse amount of sourcing that you uh, suggest people engage in is, is a good big step towards towards gaining that that knowledge. Alan, thank you so much for your reflections. And, and again, if people want to read this important article, it was published April the 9th. It's how Bellingcat launders national security state talking points into the press. And that was on Mint Press News. So Alan, thank you so much. We look forward to staying in contact with you and we'd love to have you back on in the near future. So keep writing. Well, as, as always, it's been nice to speak to you, Patrick. Okay, thanks. So that concludes our interview dialogue with Dr. Alan McLeod, a fascinating account of how what appears to be news and independent thinking critiques are actually produced by large interests that have, that have money in the game. Dr. McLeod's article touched on the Atlantic Council and showed how really it's the think tank of the establishment of the national security state and particularly NATO. He shared how... In 2018, the Atlantic Council announced that it had partnered with Facebook to help decide what is fake news and what is good quality information. The way in which pejorative interests are presented as independent and unbiased in order to mislead the American public into thinking their information is untainted by special interests is remarkable. Dr. McLeod also describes how Bellingcat is presented as an independent and unbiased security source is in fact quite the opposite. And we thank so much Dr. McLeod's critique and exposition of those issues. I want to thank everyone for joining us tonight and remind you that each week from 6 to 7 p.m., Bringing Light into Darkness presents alternative information of the highest quality and sourcing. Don't believe everything you think. See you next week. Coming up next, do not go anywhere unless you're not on KOOP.org right now. Switch on over to the internet if you're on the FM dial to hear Emo Diaries with co-op's very own Stephanie at the Disco. I can't wait. And we go out as we do every week with Land of Navity. Check out the bozo 